Welcome to the 90 Minutes or Less Film Fest. My name is Sam Clements and this is the podcast that celebrates films with a 90 minute or less runtime. In each episode, a guest will select a film and join me to add to our ongoing fictional film festival. Today, we're joined by filmmaker Simon Kellen-Jones, director of the new movie The Family Plan, available on Apple TV right now as you're listening to this. Hello, Simon. Hi, how are you? Very good, thank you. And thank you for, for joining us today. Very happy to be here. Very happy to pursue your quest for the 90-minute film. It's always nice to meet a kindred a kindred spirit, a fellow fan. And actually, I love talking to filmmakers because, I mean, there's so many decisions that you have to make, you know, which which give us, you know, the film's final runtime. Um, I was wondering, is that a process that you enjoy? Do you, do you like you know the edit process and the tightening of a, of a final film? Yes, I do. And it's sort of horrifying how easy it is to cut things that you thought were absolutely essential and realise that they weren't. That's, that's really sort of slightly humiliating, actually. Um, the film I've just made, which is which is it's got a hundred and ten minute runtime, so a bit longer than your your ones. You know, our first cut was something like two and a half hours, and I was going, oh, we can easily get ten minutes out of this, no problem. You know, what you have to do as a filmmaker or a scriptwriter or an actor, even, is you have to see things as much as you can how an audience sees it. And you know, I'm watching a scene with this great music and this really cool shot going, isn't that wonderful? And the audience is going, God, this is so boring. When are they going to get on with it? It's it's an abject and an object lesson. It's a funny one, isn't it? Because I, you know, it takes so many people to make a film and, and so much time. And, you know, there's there's lots of very talented people on set, both in front of and behind the camera. But ultimately, if it isn't working, you know, in the edit, then it then it needs to go. And, and I guess as a filmmaker, you're like, well, no, because we all worked really hard that day. <laughs> it needs to go in. But, uh, but yeah, I guess the audience has the final say. Well, they do. They do. And they say, you know, we sometimes call it like it's, it's killing puppies or something like that it's so cruel and mean but those people who as you say work brilliantly and hard in a scene that is sort of basically surplus to requirements you have to be politely but professionally ruthless You've got um, an incredible CV and and uh, you know a lot of work in television, which I guess you have a very prescribed runtime for that. You know, TV episodes have to be a certain length in order to to go on the air. Is 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 that ever a, a sort of a challenge when when working in television? It it is a, a challenge. Um, and funnily enough, uh, I was working on a on a brilliant TV show called Years and Years, written by Russell Davis a few years ago. And we had the opposite problem. We were filming away and everything was going great. And I cut the first episode together and it was absolutely brilliant. And then I noticed that it was only 45 minutes long. And I went, ooh, that sounds a bit nerve-wracking. And I rang up the executive producer and said, listen, I've got to tell you, this episode is 45 minutes long. And she says, we're contracted to, to deliver 55. And I said, well, can't we just do 45? She said, no, well, it's, it's a contract. <laughs> so poor old Russell had to go off and rewrite a whole lot of scenes. We had to reshoot. So it's the opposite problem. With your new film, The Family Plan, that is going out on Apple TV. And and one of the things about that, which kind of blows my mind, is that it's going to audiences across the world all at the same time. It's not like, you know, you have your UK broadcast day or it's a film that goes around the film festivals and sort of slowly gathers momentum. This is, you know, after that date, after the 15th of December, uh, it is it is everywhere. Uh, how does that feel as, as you, know, the, you know, someone at the centre of this? Well, it's both thrilling and nerve-wracking. I mean, you know, as you you know, streamers have really changed 
the world in a lot of ways. I mean, this is this is a big movie. It's on a, it's on a streamer, um, so you won't see it in the cinema. But Apple is very very ambitious. They they want to make movies. They don't want to make TV movies. They want to make movies. And yes, you go, wow, this film has. You know, if people hate it, they're gonna. Watch it quickly. The word will get out very quickly throughout the world and it'll be gone. But, you know, hopefully people will like it. I think people love Mark Wahlberg, who is, by the way, utterly genius in the movie. So I think I think it, it's it's exciting. And I'm, what I hope it will do is, is get more people subscribing to Apple and get more and more people to watch the movie. I think you're right. Apple are like really building up this roster of, of great films and, and you know, TV shows as well, really cinematic TV work. You know, they've they funded the new Martin Scorsese film, the new Ridley Scott film. Yeah. And, and you know, like, they're, you're right, they're making movies, proper movies. I mean, they really are. I mean, I think what they say, you know, Apple doesn't have as many people as Netflix and stuff, but I think they do have really good quality control. I think, I think they're... They don't make as many films, but what they make, they're, they're really invested not only financially, but also sort of mentally and, and passionately. I feel like Family Plan really goes for it with the action and it delivers on that front. Honestly, it's a bigger film by a long way than I've ever made before. So initially I was a bit nervous um, because in TV you do action stuff, but you don't have the money, you don't have the time. And, and of course, you, you know, it's not you don't get that far into it. I got to tell you, I love doing action, and it's it's. I've always liked it, but now I've, I wouldn't say I've done it properly, but I've done done scenes like you say where we at least try to commit to it, and it's so fun, and it's such a whole new deal. You know, I watch a film like John Wick or whatever with completely new eyes because it's such a it's such a it's such a difficult thing to get right. You know, I did have a I had a great second unit director and a great stunt coordinator, but I was very very opinionated about how the scenes looked and were shot and stuff. And I'm relieved to hear that you like them. And I hope people agree with you. It must be quite a, a fine sort of tightrope to walk, you know, just getting the tone right when you're at the centre of, of this. You read it in the script and you're like, oh, blimey, OK, we need to do a really convincing fight scene and then make some gags land, <laughs> you know, and with a Hollywood A-lister at the centre of it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, you're talking about... Um, it's it's a road movie based. I'm not, I'm not going to give too much of the story away, but basically, Mark Wahlberg is a uh, a very cozy, slightly boring suburban dad with a nice, slightly troubled, stuck in a rut suburban family. But his past catches up with him, and he has to take his family to flee a lot of bad people who are trying to kill them on a road movie from Buffalo, uh, New York to Las Vegas. And as you say, the tone is hard because it's supposed to be fun and funny and kind of vaguely truthful about family, but there are people trying to kill them. So, you know, it's not very funny if any of them get killed, but it's also not very realistic if they don't nearly get killed. So, as you say, mm. judging that tone without the audience going, oh, for God's sake, it's so cheesy, it's so uh, unfunny, it's so um, boring, whatever, you know, you have to try and, try and keep that wit and that humour alive while making it believable. Now that you've done the family plan and, you know, like I say, like if, if listeners look through your, your CV, your IMDb page, your, your credits are so numerous. You know, are you are you going to do more films after this or have you got some more TV work lined up? We're talking at the end of the year. So I wonder what your 2024 has got in store for audiences. I don't know yet, which is both exciting and rather nerve wracking. Um, yes, I've got a very, very extensive CV, which is another way of saying I'm quite old. Um, I've done lots of things. So thank you for president like that. Um, I was brought up in the BBC, which I will always give a little bit of a plug to because it was my training ground 
that's a place where where it's not really there for profit. It's there to communicate, to educate, to entertain, whatever. But yeah, films. I, I've just I've just done two movies recently, both of them with um, Mark Wahlberg, in fact. Um, and perhaps it's just because I love working with him. But I actually loved the movies. I mean, you know, you have a bit more money, you have more time, you don't have much more control because, of course, the studio's in charge. But you have a basically they let you do what what you want until they hate it, and then they step in. And you know, we we got on pretty well on, on this film with the, the the studio and Apple. I, I like the films. It's not as different as I thought. You think, oh my god, it's a it's a hundred whatever million dollar movie. It's going to be completely different to an episode of TV. And really, it is, but you've still got a script and actors and people saying, why are you spending so much money? Why aren't you finishing? People say, oh, I want to go home, I'm tired. You know, whatever. It's kind of the same. Um, and, you know, if you screw it up, you get in trouble um, either way. So, um, yes, I'd rather do movies, but TV is where I'm originally from and where I've had some very happy experiences. Do you get a chance to uh, to sort of see what's going on in cinema? Do you like to unwind uh, by watching movies? Is is that a, a pastime you're sort of able to, to to enjoy when you're you're working so much? I mean, what I tried to do, I was I spent months and months in Atlanta uh, making this film, the the family plan, and obviously most of the time you can't get any free time. You're working all the time, but at the weekends you tend to get the weekends off in in sort of name at least. So yes, I, I hope I never stop going to the cinema. I mean, I love watching big movies on on a screener. I've got a reasonably large TV at home. But, you know, the cinema's cool as well, isn't it? There's something about it. We were talking about IMAX earlier and things like that. And it's the, the time, the rhythm, everything changes when you're in a cinema. When you do go to the cinema, does does a film's runtime ever come into your decision-making process? Or is that really not, not something on your mind? Well, it's interesting. It, it did the other day because I was in London. I live in I live in outside London, a place called Somerset. I thought, okay, I'll catch up with some movies. I want to go and see three movies and starting from 1pm or something like that. And it was really hard because as, as you know, I was trying to schedule it, and I was I was at one cinema, a big place called the Westfield in, in Chelmsford Bush. So they got 14, 15 screens. I saw the Anatomy of a Fall, and that's like two hours and something minutes. And then then I wanted to see Saltburn, which I saw later because it was quite long. And then then I saw the Creator, and that's you know well over two hours. So yes, running time absolutely does. And you know, if they'd been shorter, I'd have seen more films. If only there was a 90 minutes or less film festival. <laughs> <laughs> so good catch on, good catch on. I love talking to filmmakers on this podcast, but I also love, uh, you know, I, I love asking a filmmaker to make a recommendation. And, uh, you know, I, I sent you that question and uh, and you, you've chosen, I think, a, a brilliant film. But I'd just love to know, you know, what went through your mind when you, you saw that question come in? How did you end up uh, picking the film that we're going to talk about today? I thought, yeah, 90 minute film, yeah, good idea. But uh, obviously there'll be millions of them. And then I, I suddenly thought, you know, there was a big long list set. And there's two things. Firstly, there aren't that many. There are some great, obviously, some great 90-minute films. But there aren't that many films of that duration, particularly the later you go. And also, I picked several films, and they'd already been done by your previous guests. I was going, oh, this is ridiculous. I can't find a film. I, I don't want to do this. And then I suddenly thought, oh, my God, Lady Macbeth, one of the best films I've ever seen. Why didn't I think of that? I didn't realise that was 129. You know, instantly I, I was excited about doing this rather than dreading it. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to hear that. And I'm, yeah, I'm sorry. It's, uh, it is getting harder for every subsequent guest. Uh, those people who came on early, early days, they had it easy. 
Um, so I, I do appreciate the extra work that goes into uh, you know, really combing through that list. Rural England, 1865, Catherine, Florence Pugh, is stifled by her loveless marriage to a bitter man twice her age and his cold, unforgiving family. When she embarks on a passionate affair with a young worker on her husband's estate, a force is unleashed inside her so powerful that she will stop at nothing to get what she wants. William uh, Oldroyd is the director of this film. Florence Pugh is the star, and it's one of her first roles um, here. And obviously, we all know Florence Pugh today. But in 2016, I think she was just up and coming and uh, kind of took the world by storm uh, in this film. But it's got a wonderful cast, uh, Cosmo Jarvis as well, Paul Hilton, Naomi Aki uh, there, Christopher Fairbank, and a screenplay by Alice Birch. Aside from everything else, I think this film is just an explosion of talent. It's like five or six like hurricanes meet in, in one place and sort of create a tornado. Uh, and that's sort of something I'm putting in it. But, you know, I'm going to sort of single out four people. The cinematographer is called Avi Wegner, or Wegner, I don't know how you pronounce it. I think she's Australian. This this must have been one of her early-ish works. She went on to do The Power of a Dog with Jane Campion and, and another William Oldroyd film. The way the film looks is sort of, Absolutely extraordinary, very simple, very stylish, but you don't realise it's stylish because it looks so natural. So she's uh, uh, one of the exploders, if you like. Um, Alice Birch, who's really a a, a great playwright, and I think she's worked on Succession, which was famous for having lots of very, very literary writers. She also wrote um, that Sally Rooney uh, adaptation with Sally Rooney. So she's pretty cool. William Oldroyd, I don't know very much. He, this is, I think this is his first movie. He did a short before. He'd done some theatre stuff before. He has, whether by luck or by judgment, he's assembled an incredible team, not just a good team, an incredible team. And he has understood this character, this 18-year-old, whatever age she is, and he's just gone on to make a film of sort of really weird power. And then, of course, the last exploder I want to mention is, is, I'm going to be honest, is the biggest explosion on the screen of all, which is Florence Pugh. She can't have been any older than the character she was playing when she did did this. And she is so extraordinary. She starts off, um, the character starts off as, you know, quite a conventional victim of the patriarchy, I suppose, a, a, a sort of a girl, however what it's, a girl or a young woman, 18, 19, 20, who's been bartered and bought by this really revolting Northumberland family. The, the son and the father can't tell which one is more disgusting and brilliantly played. And this girl, this woman, is, as we first, as we first think, frightened and wanting to do the right thing and nervous, but sort of being a decent person and accepting her lot. And then through a sequence of events, we learn that she is nothing like a victim. She is a sort of tornado of will. And, you know, she does some really terrible, terrible things. And what is so great about the whole package, particularly for Pew, is that you you are just riveted by her. You don't really judge her. Um, you know, finding out that she's not a victim is a sort of very exciting discovery in the film, I think. But And then finding out where she takes that is both thrilling and terrifying i mean it's a sort of it's a hardcore movie it's complex and it's thrilling and it's so exciting and 
you know, it, it looks um, like a, a period film, but it isn't as, as sort of glamorous as all that. You know, it's quite rough around the edges, and I really love yeah. that. Like, it looks like they're shooting sort of on location rather than a soundstage a lot of the time, and you, you sort of see a lot of naturalistic lighting. You see, you know, there's sort of... Uh, where there's like a lack of furnishing around the house that you know it's a it is a big estate but it isn't like a royal estate you know there's sort of somewhere in between and and uh, it's kind of nice you know it isn't it's it's a slightly different period i think to what we've seen before and you're right with the cinematography it's captured in such a way it feels really fresh and vibrant there's lots of like handheld photography some really dynamic like 360 sets where the camera follows people around sort of thinking about the uh, the the workers in the stables and how sort of the camera follows them around the room there um but yeah it's, it feels really fresh i think that's what i took away from this and actually rewatching it to ahead of talking to you even though it came out seven years ago i think it feels as fresh today as it did uh, back in 2016 well that's right i mean you're you're speaking to a sort of late middle-aged white man here but this is a film that sort of starts the story before the harvey weinstein the me too thing you know it starts to ask the questions about you know i'm, I'm not going to get too clever about patriarch and stuff like that but you know basically this is a young woman who everyone is assuming is just going to fall into line and do what she's told and there may be sort of nasty sexual stuff bullying there's there's violence she gets hit a couple of times and she makes it very very clear that she will not be treated like that and she takes very very i mean talk about agency she takes very decisive acts um, that include deaths by the way several times but it's not really about her being a killer it's about her refusing to be trodden down and and it's both shocking and thrilling and kind of rewarding to see i think the way it's delivered as well it isn't showy you know like i think florence Pugh gives a really reserved performance but but uh, but also you can tell that that character is always thinking about what she has to do next to not only survive but to come out on top in a in a situation whether it is with the the servants in the house or her lover or her husband or the father-in-law like she sort of is trying to work out the best way to to get out of that situation and move into a better place um there and and yeah she's unrelenting and you know has uh, takes no prisoners uh, there which i think again in considering the setting and what we've seen what we know as audience members going into a a, a piece like this uh, it constantly subverts your expectations you know it's uh, it's one of those films i remember when i saw it in the cinema i came out and I was a little bit shell-shocked. You know, I, I had to go for a walk around the block just to cl clear my head a little bit. Yeah, ab absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's really, it, you know, it take, you're, you're sort of almost invited to remember those sort of Jane Austen stories or those sort of classic period dramas. And then, you know, you, you sort of almost think you know what's going on. But but the strength of the, the the female character sort of so far exceeds your expectations. You know, we're, we're all used to sort of seeing, you know, uh, strong women in the Jane Austen story, but they still secretly want to get married and, and live in a rich estate. Florence Pugh does that. She does get married and she does live in a rich estate, but um, she very much makes her own journey. I think that's the... Uh... That's the. That's, it's actually seeing it from her point of view. I guess a lot of films are told from a male perspective, but when there's a lot of scenes in this film where the the, the male characters have left and they're, they're leaving yes. her sort of on her own, they, they they often say, "We're leaving you with your thoughts." You know, you need to think about yourself. You know, don't go out and take the air. You, you need to you need to stay inside and and convalesce. And and actually, it's uh, it's, it's it's the absence of of absence of of uh, men is is again quite unusual for for this type of film. 
Absolutely, yes, absolutely, and uh, yeah, they're not they're not they're not background characters, the men, but but they and they and they're brilliantly played um, by yeah, um, Christopher Fairbank plays sort of the father-in-law, who is sort of lethally cold and lethal, lethally cynical, and just assuming that she knows her role, which he seems to do, even though she's being badly treated. Um, but yeah, the, the men in the men in this they're not they're not sort of so much easy cliche targets, but they're they're not very appealing people. Let's be fair. Not at all. And it's uh, what I like about this film as well is a lot of the drama plays out in sort of you know it's it's, it's a really small cast in you know at the center of it. But even then, a lot of the drama is is you know scenes between just two characters. There's lots of one on one scenes, you know, and and uh, there's some really great stuff with Florence Pugh and Christopher Fairbank around a dinner table, and it's a tiny dinner table. It's shot you know symmetrically, uh, you know. There's no camera movements or, or or cutting away. It's just them playing for five minutes and. And you know, really like needling uh, each other, and 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 you see Florence Pugh like working out how best to respond to how you know his intimidations. Well, I think that's right. I think that's a really good point about how small the dinner table is. It's a sort of creative choice, and it forces them together, and it makes their world world small. And I remember in the scene you were talking about Christopher Fairbank, who was sort of reading her the riot act and telling her how to be. He's eating not very nicely, and and you can't help but see the little bits of egg or something on his lip. And and they're sort of fascinating. <laughs> um, but but I think, I'm sure it was a deliberate choice or something they went with in the edit because it just makes him so, so it adds a layer of grossness to him without without having to lie. Yeah, like he's this sort of like hideous kind of creature and it just adds to it, doesn't it? You know, he's already got sort of, you know, his, his attitude is horrible and he's got this like mad hair and a red face and it just adds to his, how kind of vile he is. And you can tell he's kind of pulling the strings, you know, he's the one who's really trying to make his son have this relationship uh, with her, you know, to the point where they say, you know, he bought her basically uh, along with the estate and has, his, he's the sort of puppet master, I think, of this yes. situation she's now yes, in. Yes, absolutely. Exactly. Do you love me? Of course. Do you adore me? Of course. Could you do without me? Could you do without me? It's husbands and wives that kiss like that. <laughs> Did your husband kiss you, Catherine? <laughs> you know I shan't be parted from your life, Sebastian. Through hell and high water, I will follow you. To the cross, to the prison, to the grave, to the sky. It is a you know a brisk runtime and it, it does fly by, but I, I do think they 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 pace this film so well um, there and, and you know that that must come from the script, but also the edit and and how the scenes are played uh, there. But it, I think it it kind of covers a lot of ground with a with a very little amount of screen time and you know and it's it's these these short one-on-one scenes which have huge ramifications for the plot uh, as we as we sort of progress no that, that's absolutely right it's really well judged in terms of time because also as you say it moves along it does what it needs to do very quickly but it doesn't feel like a fast-paced film and and the film is very confident uh several times about just holding the camera on Florence Pugh in this sort of strange starchy, rather beautiful blue dress sitting on a sofa. And the camera just sits there, it might move in a tiny bit, or it might just stay there, and she doesn't do much. But 
you know, you're just mesmerized by by an actor. And that's that's you know, that's the as a director, what you want is the camera to see stuff that you don't. It sort of reveals a sort of magic. And I, you know, maybe William Aldroyd knew exactly what was happening, but maybe he got to the country room and, and went, Oh my God, that that woman, that girl, that actor, she's just doing stuff that that tells the story without me having to write words or having to have anyone else write words. I, I love those shots. They're kind of iconic. And the film is shot in this widescreen cinemascope and then to see Florence Pugh and, and it's all it is is a like a, a sofa, um, a chaise lounge and, and, and she's in that dress looking bored you know, for a minute or 30 seconds or something. That says everything you need to know about that character with no dialogue, no fancy camera moves. Um, and, and, you know, it's sometimes simple is the best way to go. And, and I, I think that is so powerful. I understand that the budget was really quite low. Um, obviously, the, the, no one got paid very much. But I, th- I don't know if this is right. I heard that it was half a million pounds, which is really like a almost like an episode of low-budget TV. And you would never in a million years call this a TV movie, whether you saw it on TV or not, because it is so cinematic and it's so sort of visceral and so raw. Um, and, it, you know, it goes to show that you you don't need to have um, a massively long running time or a huge budget or, you know, even, even megastars in a film. You know, one of the great, greatest things about a film is when you as an audience think you're discovering something. You know, we were all going, oh, that's Florence Pugh. I've just discovered her because I think she's really good. I think she's going to go far. And of course she did. I guess it's like finding the, knowing the right way to realise a, a script. But, you know, they, I think with this small cast and there's like three locations in this film. There's the house, the outhouse and the gardens or the woods. If people leave, they leave and they're off screen um, until they come back to this house. The camera never wants to leave this estate, uh, which I, I really like. It's, it's a bit cheesy, but, it, I, you know, the, the location is a character in this story. Um, it sort of adds to those to those, you know, like period novels that we all know and love. I think where the, the author can really sort of uh, lean into the, the location where the characters or the action is taking place. Well, that's really right. And I, I never read the the... The, the film is taken from a book or a novella, I think, that I think is a Russian one. Um, is it called Lady Macbeth of the Matensk District or something like that? That's the one, that's the one. Which which I think is uh, it's Russian. So what they do is they choose Northumberland, which is gorgeous and beautiful, but very, very bleak, very harsh. And there's a couple of scenes of Catherine who says she likes going outside. They're telling her not to go outside because probably it's that's a, sort of like a metaphor for not wanting her to be free. I don't know what it is. But anyway, she goes, well, I'm going outside, so there. And, you know, there's a few scenes of her. They don't, they don't go for sort of beautiful sunrises. They go for sort of brooding skies and sort of dark, grungy, autumnal colours. Uh, and it, it does look stunning, but it looks threatening as well. Absolutely. I think that's, uh, it's sort of, I, I think she's you know she's she's keen not to tow the the line which has been forced upon her and by going outside I think just because that is sort of a, a small act of, re- of rebellion early on um, before she really kind of takes control of her destiny it's like it's sort of like the little thing she can do um, even though it is as simple as just going for a walk exactly <laughs> like I, I, Florence Pugh is is I say really commanding but the character Catherine she's playing is 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 kind of perfectly suited to to Florence Pugh and. There's uh, just some like little scenes like showing how how she learns how she can use her status to take charge. Like there's a a lot of the 
uh, the workers on the estate are sort of messing around early on, and and you know she she realizes she can boss them around. She's got the social authority to to do that, even though she's a lot smaller than them. There's just one of her and and lots of them, and and it happens later in the film as well, where a, a, a vicar comes by uh, to sort of just you know tell her to try and sort of rein it in um, her her affair and, and that sort of stuff. And she realizes she can end the conversation by standing up because society is so bound by these you know sort of uh, etiquettes that they've got that if she stands up the conversation's over and the priest looks a bit taken aback uh, there and, and I, I just love those little simple actions that we, we sort of see as the character really sort of learns what she can and can't do yeah. uh, to use her authority yes and it's, it's you sort of, as you see her sort of development and evolution you sort of you wonder would she have always turned out like this or was it provoked uh, was it a reaction to the way she'd been treated if she'd been nurtured would she have been a sort of loving person or would she have still been this sort of crazy, slightly dominant, slightly well, very assertive character? So I think I think you're sort of wondering what makes her tick, which is a, which is a fascinating process. Have you kept well? I have. Thank you, sir. You haven't been running the house in my absence. I have. That wasn't a question. Where's your husband? Wherever you put him. I think the whole thing is is beautifully sort of rounded out by the score uh, for the piece. It's uh, it's it's quite a contemporary uh, score. It's very brooding, very powerful. Um, it's not you know like a classical strings or an orchestra uh, here. It's by Dan Jones and uh, and and yeah, it really. I just think, especially when I saw it in the cinema, I do remember coming out and thinking the score sort of really added to this contemporary, very modern sort of take on a on a period film. Yes, it's, yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? How powerful music is and you know like you say it doesn't it doesn't it's not like sort of electronic uh, techno um but it it just has it just helps announce that this film is looks like something you're expecting but it isn't absolutely i think it really got a lot of people i remember at the time sort of people who maybe had been put off by what they thought a period film was and kind of got them excited uh you know as this is as a as a setting uh, for for films and showing you can do a modern film, you know, in a you know in this sort of corsets and long gown sort of uh, setting, it's definitely become a bit of a modern classic in my eyes. Great, yeah. Well, I I completely agree with that. But is is this something you know when when you watch something like this, do you feel inspired or very much watching this and, and going on the ride yourself? Both, both. I mean, I, I you know, there's that funny thing. You a lot of filmmakers um, either rip people off or they, as we as we call it in the business, pay homage to. Um, which is which is sort of you know theft is illegal but homage is legal um so no but but I, rather rather than want to sort of pinch ideas from the people who made this film i i'm definitely inspired to you know to make films that are you know not about sort of immense spectacle and uh escapism but that put people the audience front and center of I mean, it's uncomfortable. Some of this film is quite uncomfortable. You know, you want, as an audience, we're quite conventional. We want our leading characters to be beautiful, and Florence Pugh is beautiful, but that's not the point about her character. We want them to be funny and lovely and romantic and noble and stuff like that. And then, again, this film starts to diverge from all of that by going, well, she is the hero, but she's an anti heroine and, uh, 
Anyway, she's not she's not going to do what you want. So tough. Yeah, it's a really good um, yeah sort of agency uh, the character has, and I think as an audience, it keeps you guessing. You know, I, I really had no idea how this film was going to end, and the ending really. It kind of surprised me and it shocked me and it stayed with me. Um, it's it's a it's a it's a bold ending. Yeah, I mean it's a horrifying ending. I mean on 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 multiple levels. I mean there's a sort of there's there's love and sympathy that switches very quickly to cold murder, to betrayal, to the you know the renunciation of a love for whatever reason. I mean it's, it's sort of crazy. I didn't I couldn't keep up. But, you know, again, it's not about me, this film, I think it's about her. And so, so I, like you, like you, you know, you were saying earlier that you had to always go and have a little bit of a walk uh, after you'd seen the film to sort of work out what you thought about it. And and I think it's, it's one of those things that, you know, d- did she win in the end? Did she get what she wanted? Did she sentence herself to a lifetime of self-imprisonment? I don't know. Um, she took some actions that, would normally have very, very serious consequences. And I think she will have probably escaped the sort of legal ramifications. But I think, I don't know, maybe maybe she'll go on forever and ever, or maybe she'll regret it, or, you know, maybe she'll be really happy. It's impossible to tell. So what we we like to do, we also we're a fictional film festival, but uh, but we like to you know sort of keep in the vibe uh, here as you know as if we were planning a real uh, film screening. And, and as our guest uh, curator Simon, who's who's programmed very kindly, Lady Macbeth for us, um, if we do you know put on a show and we want to show the film to an audience, where would you like to screen it if you could pick a location for for uh, for Lady Macbeth? That's a that's a great question. I, I don't I mean I, it deserves a huge big screen. I'd almost put it on an IMAX screen. Bizarrely, it's not an IMAX movie at all. It's a sort of it's a widescreen movie, um, but I'd also I think it would I would put it in. Uh, do, I don't know if you saw a film years ago called Cinema Paradiso, um, which is where everyone this, this traveling projectionist would go to town squares and paint a wall white and then project a film. And then there was a kid who fell in love with movies like this. You know, I would sort of do guerrilla screenings of this film uh, where, where I would turn up with a powerful projector and sound system and find a white wall and a, and a rainless day and I would blast it against the wall and, and have everybody watch it and then, you know, have them face the consequences of their own reactions. Oh, that's very that's very rock and roll. I love that. Um, and yeah, you know, with our unlimited budget for this film festival, we would happily, happily make that happen. Well, thank you so much for, for talking uh, to us today. Really appreciate uh, your time and uh, also really appreciate the family plan, which is on Apple for the holidays. I love the, the date this is dropping. Uh, it's kind of a perfect thing to get the whole family around the TV for and uh, and, you know, go on a go on a road trip, go on a on a, you know, uh, via your TV, uh, go on this thrill ride. And, and you know, just see Mark Wahlberg do do what he does best. Great. Well, listen, I've had a ball doing this. Thank you for forcing me to find a film that's under ninety minutes, <laughs> and then and then work out why I like it. It's a really it's a really good film festival you're running, and, and I wish you uh, many many more years with it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe on your podcatcher of choice. You can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or if you've got a mo, share an episode with your friends. 
every recommendation helps. You can contact us on our website, 90minfilmfest.com, and on Twitter and Instagram, at 90minfilmfest. The podcast is produced by me, Sam Clements, and Louise Owen. It's edited by Louise Owen, with sound mixing and additional editing by Luke Smith. Our music is by Martin Ostwick, and our artwork is by Sam Gilby. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're a proud member of the Stripped Media Network. 